You're listening to High Temperature Times, 10 to 25 minutes of action-packed discussion on refractory technology and highly engineered dirt. My name is Griffin Patterson, and I am an application specialist with Harbison Walker International. Every once in a while, I get the opportunity to sink my teeth into some of the more unique aspects of the refractory industry. And it's just too much fun to pass on sharing those interesting topics with you. Mind you, I'm not the smartest person or the most technical person in the industry, but I guess I'm the best you got. If you want the smartest person and most technical person in the industry, reach out to us at technical-marketing at thinkhwi.com and we'll get you in front of them. Until then, I want to take a hot minute to chat with you about non-wedding refractories. Wedding? Non-wedding? Just what in the heck is that? Hydrophobic and hydrophilic substances. I know, fancy words don't suddenly make it make sense. Sorry. Materials that avoid water and materials that attract water. Think about those fancy clothes or hiking shoes where liquids run right off them and they don't get wet. That's what we're getting into. But why is water important when we're at thousands of degrees? Well, some refractory materials have this same property, but instead of having water run right off, the idea is to have extremely hot liquids run right off. So we're talking molten slag, molten aluminum, molten steel. But before we get into the application, let's take a peek under the hood at the science. To talk about the science, I'll use water as a frame of reference due to its approachability, but the same concepts are applied to all liquids, even at very high temperatures. When water hits a surface, it will either spread into a thin layer or beat up on that surface. Which direction that goes depends on the relationship between the liquid and the solid surface. These are two broad categories though, and there are levels within them that are critically important to certain materials like those super hydrophobic coatings that repel water. Uh, The feature they use to describe this is the angle of contact where you measure the angle from the center of where the drop meets the solid to the droplet triple point where the solid surface, liquid droplet, and air all meet. When the water beads up on the surface in a hydrophobic nature, that angle is greater than 90 degrees. So the bead rounds out away from the body. If the water quickly adheres to the surface in hydrophilicity, forming a bridge between the droplet source and the surface, the angle will be less than 90 degrees, almost like some kind of capillary action effect. In those crazy non-wetting clothes, or in a more natural scenario like lotus leaves, the angle can be higher than 150 degrees, which is considered super hydrophobicity. So the liquid is barely going to connect with the solid surface. But that level of beating isn't something that's going to happen in refractories, unless you see that awesome Leidenfrost effect. But that's a whole different scenario. Slash science. So what determines whether a liquid is going to adhere to the surface or repel from the surface? There are two approaches to this. The first, and less useful one for refractories, is the surface topology. And those super hydrophobic lotus leaves I mentioned earlier, the surface is made up of a series of waxy nodules that provide a very torturous surface area for the water to adhere to. Surface treatment's easier when you have millions of years of evolution behind you, or when you're working in a very small lab. But it's a lot harder when you're shooting thousands of pounds of refractory a day. The other factor that matters is the surface energy, and the energy between the two surfaces called the interfacial energy. While all that stuff is important to the physicists and the scientists, we're engineers. Let's talk an engineering term. No need to break out Gibbs free energy model or understand dipole-dipole interactions of liquids. The truth of the matter is that wettability is a calculation that pits the surface energy of the refractory against the surface energy of the liquid and the interstitial energy between the two. You can take that to the bank, just don't let them ask you what it means. What we can talk about though is the role of temperature in this. After all, what's the point of talking about refractories? You don't turn up the heat, right? Here we can use a much cooler experimental approach, much more fun than talking physics and equations and theories. So we take a cube of material, like a slag or a metal, and we put it on a refractory substrate right tucked up against the microscope. We get to use our eyes here. Yay! When we crank up the temperature, we'll see the cube melt into a liquid, changing from a cube to a sphere because of surface energy. But will that sphere of liquid beat up on the surface of the refractory or wet down against it? The answer is it depends. An engineer's favorite non-answer, I know. 
but I say it depends because it depends on temperature. At low temperature, it might beat up quite nicely. But then after a certain temperature, maybe it will begin to wet. Why? What happens at X temperature that causes the situation to change? Well, at high temperatures, stability is hard. Minerals used to make refractory bodies in an 80-degree manufacturing plant will not remain those same minerals after experiencing high temperatures. The change in wettability might occur because of reaction, either in the refractory body that changed the refractory surface energy, or a reaction that suddenly has the thermal energy to unlock the activation energy required to change something between the liquid and the refractory body, drastically affecting the interfacial energy. Anyways, suffice it to say, temperature matters. One real-world example I have is a test from J.D. Steenkamp et al. published in ASM International in 2014, looking at a rammed material commonly used in the steel industry and how it reacts with industrial slag. The refractory is a complex carbon, silicon carbide, mullite, and cement bonded mix, and the slag is a calcium, alumina, silica, and magnesium mix. So when the slag melts, it balls up in a hydrophobic nature until around 2700 Fahrenheit. Then it begins to wet to the refractory in a more hydrophilic nature. That's because around that temperature, a reaction occurred that allowed the silicon carbide in the refractory to find its way into the slag. That reaction and material movement can't occur unless interfacial energy allows it to. So changes in the interfacial energy lead to a change in the wetting behavior. Cool, right? So why does any of this matter? The question I expect everyone to ask, and I thank you for doing so. It's also the reason why I chose this paper as a reference example. They crushed the explanation. Doing some visual geometry of the bead images, they see that the volume of the droplet is decreasing as the wetting behavior begins changing. Given the slag's composition, I can promise you it doesn't begin vaporizing at only 2700 Fahrenheit. So that means that it must be seeping into the refractory body. SEM analysis showed just that. Before 2700 Fahrenheit, slag penetration was very little, less than 0.4 millimeters in the deepest spots. Once the slag began wetting to the refractory, slag penetration went to a uniform one millimeter depth across the board. And that's only a small droplet of slag in a short period of time. So all that prep and a couple choice examples takes you right where you need to be. Why is this important? If a refractory body is non-wetting to the liquid that it's in contact with, no penetration can occur. If no penetration occurs, no degradation happens. Meanwhile, if hydrophilic wetting behavior occurs, the liquid, the slag, the molten iron, the molten steel, what have you, can seep into the pores and begin penetrating the surface of the refractory, leading to reactions that, I don't know, form low melting eutectic phases, maybe they're expansive reactions, or just areas of high density that can promote spalling. This is why I thought this topic was just so cool and I had to share it. There are a few different ways to reduce slag or molten metal penetration. You can reduce porosity, so there are less pathways for molten liquids to enter. You can introduce glass formers that slow the speed of the penetration, or you can use physics and surface energy. If the surface is hydrophobic or non-wetting to the liquid in question, the energy required to penetrate those pores will be too high and it will just float over top of them. And that is just so cool. But I won't just stop there. I'll bring a smidgen of refractory expertise to it too. We talked earlier about how the wetting behavior changed after a certain temperature. That's important. In order to have a refractory body that's non-wetting to liquid materials, we need to know what aspects of a refractory composition make it non-wetting. For that, we'll need to be a little more specific on the application. The example with the silicon carbide in the refractory body reacting with the industrial slag was specific to the steel industry, but we also have examples where we could look at reducing molten aluminum penetration or slag specific to the power or incineration industries. But let's ta tackle it again through, again, specific examples. Conveniently enough, one of the most common refractory bodies, alumina, is intrinsically non-wetting to molten iron. However, an air atmosphere can mess all that up. 
It's fairly well known that molten iron can be disturbed by oxygen to form a slag layer on top. Iron metal becomes iron oxide. That iron oxide formation in the presence of air can react with alumina refractory to form FeAl2O4 or hersenite. This potential for reactivity will adjust the wettability of the molten iron to the refractory, reducing the contact angle from a hydrophobic 100 to 140 degrees to a more hydrophilic number that I was unable to discern from the literature. My bad. The whole molten slag, molten iron, air, refractory hellscape can wreak havoc on the slag line of the vessel, but less so under the melt where air is less likely to be. That's partially why higher refractory materials or more naturally non-wetting materials are commonly used in that area of a furnace or a vessel. But it's pretty neat how the commonly used aluminum material crushes it so hard in molten iron vessels in such a simple way. When talking about non-wetting materials for refractories, one of the most well-known examples is mag carbon brick for steel melting. Carbon content in BOF and EAF brick can range from 10 to 20% carbon in the form of graphite, where more carbon addition means better thermal shock resistance and better slag resistance at the challenge of being more prone to oxidation, since graphite is highly prone to oxidation. Antioxidants can be used to prevent this, but it's, it's always a balance. So I was talking about non-wetting materials, but I didn't mention it back there. Well, I did, only a slag resistance. We can look at things from all angles now, can't we? The graphite in mag carbon brick resists degradation from slag by increasing the eutectic melting point of lime, silica, and iron-based slags to 2900 Fahrenheit, which is above the steel melting temperatures. So it's actually a really unique approach to changing interfacial energy to prevent wettability. By including graphite, you're actually creating a little solid phase between your liquid and the refractory. I guess that'll slow the reaction down, huh? Another material that sometimes comes up in these conversations is FOS, or phosphorus. FOS bonded refractories are pretty cool. Since they don't use calcium aluminate cements for bonding, they can be dried out quickly and without significant hold times. The bonding mechanism also helps reduce porosity. There's even some science about it being more thermal shock resistant, but I'll try not to dig into that though. We're here to talk about phosphate bonding as a non-wetting agent. Now, I know that phosphates reduce slag penetration in certain applications because phosphorus is a glass modifier. So silicon heavy slags will hit the phosphate groups and have their viscosity skyrocket to more like a thick honey. Great mechanism, nothing to do with wettability or contact angle, but I applaud the NETL for their work on that. But some reports are showing that aluminum phosphate compounds used in refractories for the aluminum industry have non-wetting properties that are increasing the lining lifetime and slowing degradation due to molten aluminum penetration. While the reality of the mechanism is more grandfathered knowledge and less baked in science, Mark Pomacino, who regularly joins me in this podcast, has done some deep dives in the science and identified a likely mechanism for the increased resistance based around phosphate-based glass formation, inducing highly aluminum-resistant phases to form. So phosphonated bricks or monolithics that have FOSS are making waves in the aluminum industries in ways that aren't always easy to discern from data sheets. Another cool one there, for sure. Now, I'm sure there are more things out there. Refractory classifications are as diverse as I am thick. There's a whole periodic table of things thrown in, and a lot of them are not made privy to a guy like me. But I really enjoyed learning about how you can adjust the way molten liquid sticks to red-hot refractory by adding a pinch of element X and how that massively increases your lining lifetime. There is a lot of really tight and detailed science out there that can be difficult to apply to the wild west of industry. But if you look hard enough, you'll catch a glimpse or two. If you'd like to talk to someone who wasn't pushing the limits of their brain capacity when talking about this, there's a few people at HWI who would love to talk on it more. Again, reach out to us at technical-marketing at thinkhwi.com and we'll get you hooked up. That same contact is also useful if you're looking to incorporate more highly engineered refractories in your vessel too. Otherwise, the only thing left for you to do is subscribe to HGT and wait until next month where we'll have even crappier humor and less crappy science to share with you. Thanks for listening.